All right, how's everybody doing? Good? Uh, reInvent day two, how's it going so far? Thumbs up? All right. Thanks for uh, being here today for our deep dive on Amazon S3 and Glacier. We've got a special guest as well. So uh, raise your hand. This, this one is an easy one, a layup. But if you're an S3 or a Glacier user, raise your hand. Uh, I thought so, about 80% of you. So thank you. Uh, for being here, and thank you for being a customer of ours. My name is Craig Cotton. I'm the Director of Product Management for Amazon S3. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about S3 architecture, and then I'm going to turn it over to Henry, who's going to talk about Glacier. And then we have a special guest, uh, Jamal Mazur from Sprinkler, an innovative social um, media company, and they're going to talk about how they're using uh, EC2, EBS, S3, doing cross-region replications. It's got some pretty interesting things to talk about there as well. And then we're going to take some if we finish on time, we'll take some questions with the mics here at the end, so keep track of your questions. And then, of course, after the session, we'll be up front here uh, if you're uh, embarrassed to ask it in the live audience or if you don't get to your question, just let us know. Uh, so here is the agenda I already gave you, a little bit of a deep dive on S3, talk about Glacier, and then we'll hear from Jamal from Sprinkler. And here is the AWS storage portfolio. So we've got Block, of course, with uh, EBS and our EC2 instance storage. File would be EFS, our Elastic File Service. And then on the object side, we've got uh, S3 and Glacier for your object storage. And then, of course, we've got a whole host of ways to get data into and out of uh, S3 and Glacier and our other storage products. So just a flyby there. And make sure that you memorize the little product logos. There'll be a quiz on those later so that... Uh, some of the benefits uh, before we get into the deeper dive. So, of course, S3 and Glacier are very durable, very highly available. We're going to talk a little bit about how we achieve that today. And, of course, uh, very scalable, hopefully nice and elastic for you. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about security and compliance for each and some of the things that we're doing there. Uh, we've got, we think, the industry's broadest way to analyze the data in place. Uh, many of our customers building data lakes on S3 and Glacier as well and to be able to query it using various query tools. So we'll talk about that and some of the other uses for it. Uh, there have been sessions, hopefully you caught one yesterday afternoon, on the management of data within S3. Uh, Susan and Sunder uh, and um, uh, Alert Logic uh, presented at that one. That was uh, interesting. And then the broadest ecosystem of partners that claim API compatibility, something more than 100 uh, customers that say they're uh, some level of uh, S3 API compatible. So. Uh, really broad applicability across the industry there for you. So uh, a bit more on S3 specifically. Some people think it was the first uh, AWS service. It was actually the second, um, but one of the, the first three services. So we've been around more than 11 and a half years and um, got a lot of experience operating, building, and maintaining the service over that period of time. We operate within uh, 44 availability zones, or AZs, and I'm going to talk a bit more about how that works. I think that's coming up in two slides. And we've got uh, a lot more coming. These have already previously been announced, but 16 of those in 2018. And we're in all 16 of AWS's regions, and we'll be in all five of the, uh, the new regions that are coming between now and the end of 2018 as well. We have our uh, 11 nines of durability. So the likelihood that you write or put an object into S3 and that we are going to lose your object is not zero, but it's, it's not very high. And uh, we'll talk about how we achieve that durability as well. 
Um, it's very high performance. We get millions of requests per second, and we've got trillions of objects stored in S3, so it's uh, quite scalable, and uh, we'll talk a bit about how you can get maximized performance out of S3 as well. Uh, High-level architecture for you. You've got your, uh, you guys on the left there, and you've got your request plane where you're doing your puts, your gets, your deletes, and things like that coming in, and they hit a, a large fleet of S3 load balancers. Um, those load balancers then uh, parse out the requests to our API servers uh, through secured connections. And then fundamentally, uh, we store blobs of your objects into blobs on the blob storage. And then we've got our index or our metadata storage, which is a key value pair um, that tells us where your, your objects are located. So um, that's about uh, the extent of the detail that we'll go into in the high-level architecture there. Uh, let's talk a bit about availability zones. This is still very uh, differentiated for S3 and for Glacier and for AWS. So when you write data to S3, we are always storing it in a minimum of three availability zones. And I say a minimum of three because some of our larger regions have more than three availability zones. Each of those availability zones, and some of you, anybody uh, go to James Hamilton's Tuesday night session last year? Anybody? A couple of you. Um, so he went into some of the detail on the network and the high-speed networking. So Peter DeSantis, I think, is uh, having a session along those lines. I believe that's tonight. I don't know the exact time. But uh, if you're interested in some of the broader uh, details on how AWS is built, uh, you might want to check out Peter's session tonight. Um, for us, an availability zone could be a single data center, or it could be as many as eight physical separate data centers made up within one availability zone. And those are connected via a private Amazon network, AWS network that's made up of uh, private fiber and, and very high-speed networking gear, and generally a very low-latency network between those. Um, and again, we store in a minimum of three AZs. So we can lose an entire availability zone, and you would likely not even know that that happened with the way that we store data. So it's a little bit different than some of the other folks out there in the world that store data in a single uh, they might call it a region, they might call it a, a zone or something like that, but it's generally a single data center or what would be analogous to a single one of our availability zones. Um, and, and that's one of the, the ways that we're quite different, we think, than a lot of the other folks out there. Uh, you're probably familiar with our storage classes. I'll do a quick flyby on this, but we've got S3 standard. That's what came out 11 and a half years ago. About two years ago, we introduced standard infrequent access. So if you've got data that you're not going to access as much, you can save uh, approximately 40% on the storage cost. There are a couple of trade-offs with a minimum object size and a minimum retention period and a retrieval fee, but for a lot of customers, it's quite cost-effective to use standard or frequent access. And then for your coldest archive data, you might want to send that off to Glacier as your lowest cost tier. Uh, the difference is, of course, with standard and standard and frequent access, uh, you'll probably not notice very much or any performance difference uh, between those two storage classes, and that's millisecond uh, retrieval, and that's synchronous, of course, uh, whereas Glacier is going to be uh, asynchronous access, and uh, Henry will talk about the, uh, the various retrieval methods, but we've got a few of them uh, there for you, and you can see the pricing starting at about 2.1 cents per gig and going down from there dependent on the, uh, the storage class. So a bit of a flyby there. And then, of course, we've got lifecycle transition. So I'm assuming a lot of you are doing a policy of, say, 30 days in standard and then 60 days in standard and frequent access, and then data that you can store in Glacier, uh, moving that off to Glacier uh, after your policy hits. 
Uh, I won't go through all of these. There are security sessions this week. Um, there's a security workshop. I think that's a two and a half hour workshop. So hopefully, I'm assuming some of you are involved in that. But uh, security is job one for us. We're continuing to uh, build and release more and more capabilities. A couple of the new ones I'll talk about on here today, but I won't have time to talk about all of these things here today. But uh, we take this uh, very, very seriously, and if you entrust your data to us, we want to make sure that it's secure, that we make it easy for you to achieve whatever kind of compliance that you need, and uh, we always encourage encryption uh, at rest uh, in, in all cases. So a couple new things on the security side. In August, we release Amazon Macy. So that's a security classification uh, and monitoring service that uh, for now sits on top of S3, and that can look for various types of data and classify things that are uh, PII, personally identifiable information, and can alert you um, if you've got buckets with open permissions or alert you when PII data might be exposed to the public. So if you haven't checked out Amazon Macy, take a look at that. And again, that came out in August of this year. And then um, for those that are concerned about uh, S3 uh, data uh, becoming available uh, via the public internet, uh, the, the first thing is don't make it public. That might sound... But they, they, these, these objects are born, uh, they come out of the womb uh, with no public access, so somebody's got to kind of turn that on. Uh, but we want to make it easier for you as well. So we had a security launch on November 6th, just a few weeks ago, and we launched in our S3 Council. Now we've added a column that says access, and we'll show you a bright orange bubble that says public for any of your buckets that have public access, okay? Um, and then you can click on that, and it'll show you the source of that public access, whether it's an ACL or a bucket-level policy, and allow you to change that if that's not your intended uh, consequence. Um, also remember that I can have a bucket with no public access, and I can have an ACL on an object that still has public access, right? So a lot of customers love that flexibility, and others, you know, would prefer that it's, uh, does, you know, no access is no access. So we've, we've gotten some requests for that for the future. We'll, we'll try to figure out how to make that easier as well. But uh, we want to make it easier for you to, to do these things. You can also see these types of things if you're a support customer using our trusted advisor service. We'll also uh, do these bucket uh, checks and we'll proactively notify you for those as well. We also wanted to make it easier to encrypt objects. So a lot of customers have a an encryption requirement. And previously, if objects came in without encryption headers, I had to block those and perhaps not receive and store the data that I wanted to store. So we've introduced default encryption on a bucket. So if you send objects to us that have an encryption header, we're just gonna pay attention to that header and do whatever you tell us to do with it. If objects come in with no encryption header, then you're gonna select server-side encryption with S3 managed keys for encryption at rest, or you can select SSE KMS, or key management service, for uh, access level encryption, and we will automatically encrypt those objects for you. There's no charge for these, these features, any of these that I've mentioned. Um, and then lastly, if you're an inventory customer, an S3 inventory report customer, we've added a couple of things there. On the security side, we've, we're giving you the inventory, I'm sorry, the encryption status and the encryption mode of the objects in your inventory report, and that allows uh, customers to uh, more easily build compliance reports around that. We're also uh, allowing customers that want to use uh, big data tools like Hive-based tools or AWS tools like uh, Amazon Redshift Spectrum or Amazon Athena, uh, the preferred method to query inventory reports is generally ORC format. So you can now select ORC uh, in addition to CSV file formats. 
Cross-region replication, we continue to invest in that. And this is where a lot of customers are happy with the way that we replicate where I talked about via the AZs before, where we're gonna store in a minimum of three AZs and protect your data that way. Other customers have um, compliance requirements or business requirements where they wanna store data X number of miles away. And if the X is you know, 100 miles or something like that, our, our AZs are miles apart, but generally speaking, not you know, hundreds of miles apart. So I've got the ability to, on an object level, on a prefix level, or on a bucket level, replicate data to another uh, AWS region. We allow you to pick any region on the globe that you like, so we give you the, the flexibility to do that. And um, we've added a couple new capabilities there. One is the ability, uh, KMS has generally been a regional-based service, so we've added KMS support so that we can basically copy the KMS key from one region to another region, allowing you to extend cross-region replication to KMS encrypted objects. And then the, the second thing that we added in November, on the November 6th launch, was ownership overwrite. So if you are concerned about accidental or malicious uh, deletions of data, you can cross-region replicate objects to another region, and you can change the ownership of that object to a different owner, thereby making it difficult or impossible for somebody to delete objects in two separate regions. So, uh, and also very easy to set up from the S3 console uh, for that. Um, customers use uh, cross-region replication in many ways. Some might just do S3 standard, S3 standard. Um, uh, very typical would be uh, S3 standard in one region, and then I'm intending to not access the data in my secondary region, so you might do standard and frequent access there. And then, uh, of course, a lot of customers will send it to another region and just a lifecycle policy that off to Glacier to have a copy of it in Glacier in another region. So lots of flexibility and choices between here, um, the, the method that you choose, as well as uh, being able to pick exactly which region that you want to send it to. Uh, doing more with your data, so increasingly we're seeing customers build data lakes based on S3, so we'll continue to build more and more analytics tools to make it easier to analyze the data that's sitting in there. And you could already use things like uh, Amazon Athena, uh, Amazon Redshift Spectrum, uh, EMR, QuickSight has a native now built-in analysis to analyze the data in your S3 buckets, uh, as well as all of the third-party analytics providers that can also query data in S3. We're seeing a lot of uh, increase in IoT storage coming out of the AWS IoT platform, uh, Greengrass storage, other sensor data that's being stored in S3. Uh, some of that is coming through uh, Kinesis Firehose or Kinesis Streams uh, into S3 as the storage location for that, as well as the predominant choice for storage for your uh, AI and machine learning. So these are the things that you want to build models on and train over time. And generally speaking, the more data that you have for these things and the more data that you can train on, the better your AI models are going to be. So we're seeing a lot of uptick and increase in ML and AI storage in S3 as well. A last thing I want to talk about before I hand off to Henry is performance maximization. So has anybody heard that you need a three-digit or a four-digit hash in your object names to create some randomness? So a couple people are saying, yeah, I know what you're talking about. So um, for most of you out there, not all of you, but for most of you, you don't have to worry about that anymore. I'm not gonna tell you exactly who should and who shouldn't, but generally speaking, we've done a lot of changes behind the scenes. First of all, we've increased our uh, transaction processing from about 100 per second to 1,000. And a lot of people say, well, you said you handle millions of transactions. So the, the 1,000 per second is per um, what we call partition. So a partition is an internal term. That can be a bucket, can be a partition. 
or each of your prefixes in a bucket can be a partition, or we can um, further partition your prefixes into a hundred different partitions, and each partition can handle a thousand transactions per second. So we get scale by going horizontal on S3 and parallelizing a lot of the activities and actions. So in, in addition to having about a, um, an order of magnitude performance improvement in our partitioning, we've also automated all of that partitioning behind the scenes, so most of you don't have to do anything. Um, we're gonna see increases in traffic within your buckets and within your prefixes, and we're gonna automatically partition for you on the back end, and it's generally taking maybe about an hour. Um, so if, if you're seeing a, a lot of increased traffic and you're seeing a little bit slower performance, and if it doesn't resolve itself in an hour, maybe an hour and a half, then you might wanna open a ticket. But generally speaking, you won't have to do anything to do that. And then for any of you, if you're, um, I don't know, a, a game producer or something like that, and you've got a new game launching, and you don't wanna wait an hour or two uh, for us to automatically partition to improve your performance, uh, you can always open a ticket. Ideally, you give us a week's notice, but a few days uh, would be good. Tell us about the bucket, tell us about your partitions, tell us what day and time your launch is, and, and we can um, pre-partition uh, your buckets for you ahead of kind of a, a step function kind of an event like a launch. Uh, so keep that in mind. Um, so generally speaking, most customers shouldn't need to, uh, to deal with this anymore. If you wanna be ultra safe, um, the, the best practice has always been introducing a, a random three-digit or four-digit hash uh, a character uh, earlier on in your key naming. Uh, but again, just to be clear, if you don't do that, we have the ability to automatically partition no matter what your uh, naming structure is anymore. That wasn't really the case you know, two years ago, but that is the case now. And I'll show you what that looks like on the next slide. Um, so again, here is, if you did wanna uh, do a hash, um, again, the earlier in the naming structure, the better. And this gives us the ability to, uh, if you have a four-digit hash, I think that's 10,000. So we could have 10,000 partitions just on that one naming structure times 1,000 transactions per second each. And if you need more scalability than that, see me up front after the session. I'd love to talk to you, and we'll figure out what we need to do custom-free. But that should handle 99.9% .9 of you. Uh, so again, this will be automated. For most of you, you shouldn't have to worry about it. Uh, if you do have the ability and want the best practices for performance, a simple three or four digit hash should do the trick. Okay, and again, we'll, uh, we'll take questions in a moment, but um, when we're done, let me hand it over to Henry to give you a little bit of a deep dive on Glacier infrastructure. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, before I begin, um, how many of you use Glacier today? Okay, that's great. Um, how many of you use Lifecycle to manage Glacier storage? Okay, great, great, thank you. So um, I wanna share a couple of uh, infrastructure insights into Glacier. Um, so to start with, um, Glacier and S3 are very similar in a way that they are both object storage services on AWS. We both have 11 nines of durability. We leverage a lot of the platform's uh, capabilities, for example, the networking, uh, the uh, cross uh, AZ, you know, uh, replication, the uh, the infrastructure that's that's built for AWS um, uh, uh, zones, but uh, these are two very different, uh, you know, storage systems 
I get a lot of questions from customers saying, hey, you know, is, is, is S2 English are the same thing? Are they, are they just like different, you know, throughput characteristics? Are they, are, they, are they the same? They're not. They're totally independent systems. And uh, I have customers who use S2 and Glacier as two independent storage services to store their very, very critical data. For example, their encryption uh, assets and things like that. And internally, we have uh, certain product teams that use both services to back up their most critical data. Uh, so that's just something to give you context of you know, how the services are different. Uh, the one thing that stands out from Glacier is uh, it's an archive service. It's uh, asynchronous, and we really try to drive down the cost. So Glacier starts at 0.4 cent uh, per gigabyte per month. So even archiving a petabyte of data per month costs um, you know, $4,000. And then we share a lot of the uh, security compliance capabilities that SU has, that the platform has, and we also uh, work very diligently with ecosystem partners to ensure that you know, tools that you're familiar with can connect to S3 and Glacier, use Lifecycle, for example, so that using AWS storage is very simple. So a lot of the customers that come, come to Glacier are, are tape customers. Uh, let me do a show of hands. How many of you use tape today? How many of you have migrated from tape to Glacier? Great, I'm your fan. Um, so this is really one of the things we've been working on to help customers uh, from, you, you know all of these, right? Like, you know, tape is hard to manage. You have to roll the tapes every, you know, five to seven years. Uh, it's really a, uh, a hard job to, to maintain, like, you know, the new tape formats. If you do it well, um, you probably, it's just, you know, it's a given. If you don't do it well, you're looking at, you know, data loss um, or, or having some type of, you know, data format mismatch uh, over time. So with Glacier, lots of customers really appreciate the fact that they don't have to roll their tapes anymore. They don't have to buy infrastructure. Uh, they also no longer have to um, manage uh, the format obsolescence, the media obsolescence that they have to deal with with, with tapes. Um, okay, little clicker issue. So I want to dig in a little bit into uh, the 11 nines of durability. Uh, a lot of customers tell me that this is, this is a great number, it's a very large number, but uh, it's different than how they think about durability on-premises. So I work with a lot of uh, media customers uh, who store you know, film assets, like the Hollywood studios, or digital preservation customers who store you know, images of books and uh, records for, for decades, right? So they are very, very um, um, peculiar about durability. And uh, we told them about 11 nines of durability, and then they really want us to help them bridge a conversation between 11 nines and you know, two or three copies on site. So we talked to a lot of customers. Uh, they typically store two copies of tape, either in the same building or in two different buildings. This is actually a, a very large studio in Hollywood. It's probably not hard to guess whom. And they really wanted to know how we derived 11 nines. So we walked them through a Markov chain model uh, that simulates failure, right? The simulation includes the failure rates, projected failure rates of storage devices for Glacier, uh, the servers, the network components, um, you know, the building, the, you know, the entire rack and things like that, and as well as AZ. So we did all of that simulation, and then uh, we came up with 11.9. So what we asked the, the, the studio to do is look at their existing model, two copies of tape, and then give, give us uh, a number of nines, right? So a couple weeks after, they told us that uh, two copies of tape on the same site, they estimate that to be four nines of durability. 
and two copies of tape in, in two buildings, let's say both in, in LA, probably 20 miles apart, they estimated that to be five nines, right? That was, that was an, an aha moment for them and for us because it was the first time we, we managed to bridge 11 nines to a number of copies, right? And they realized that you know, Glacier and S3 are both you know, seven orders of magnitude more durable than what they're used to you know, buying, maintaining, and spending all of that time refreshing year over year. Right? That, was, that was a really enlightening moment. And some of the things that customers really appreciate um, in the archiving space is this thing called fixity. Right? Fixity means that the data is stored in the original format. It hasn't been changed. Um, and it's, it's a big deal for, for film studios, for you know, archivists, if you're looking at like, you know, decades of, of retention. Um, fixity is, is a really big deal. So Glacier and S3 do uh, perform you know, fixity check on your behalf in the background at no extra cost. Right? So from an infrastructure perspective, we manage you know, billions, you know, hundreds of billions of objects in, in, in Glacier, and then we typically um, perform this fixity check for everyone's data a few times a year. Right? So that is a number that is much higher than um, most customers who manage, let's say, you know, 10, 20 petabytes or higher, right? Why is that? If, you, if they do that, um, if they store that data on tapes, the customers typically do not have enough drive to read all of their, you know, tape libraries, like, you know, once every year. They just have enough drives to, to, to support the occasional retrievals, but doing a, a full-scale 100% uh, fixity check, pulling back everything, is not something that most customers can, can handle, right? So, so put that into context, um, uh, I've talked to customers who pull back about 1% of their data per month for fixity checking, and they prioritize based on what is most important, right? So if you, if you, you know, uh, look at using Glacier, then we do 100% of your data for fixity checking um, a few times a year. And if we find any potential um, risk of data corruption, we will use um, an automatic recovery uh, method to, to fix it up. So it's all done for you, it's all you know, transparent, and there's no extra cost. So again, talking, uh, you know, comparing Glacier to Tape, which is what a lot of customers do, uh, Glacier now has three retrieval options, right? We started with the standard retrieval option in the middle. Uh, it gives you data back in about four hours. And then last year, we added an expedited retrieval option, which returns data in one to five minutes. And then we also added a bulk retrieval option, which enables customers to pull back petabytes of data uh, in five to 12 hours. So you look across the entire spectrum, now customers are able to replace any type of tape with Glacier. They weren't able to do that before we had expedited retrievals. They were able to replace uh, tapes from you know, offsite, uh, from Iron Mountain with Glacier, but a lot of customers also have on-site tape libraries where retrieval times are in you know, 20 to 30 minutes, right? Uh, now, uh, all of those can, can be uh, you know, moved to Glacier and then you get a much better experience with no overhead of, of management. So that's, that's really, that's really in, in, you know, um, exciting and we've been busy in the last, uh, last year helping a lot of customers you know, migrate their tape libraries into, into Glacier and um, you know, moving these workloads. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, you know, accessing uh, Glacier and S3. So Craig already mentioned that you know, uh, one of the preferred ways or the, or the mo most popular way of using, using Glacier and S3 is through the, uh, the lifecycle management uh, policies. 
It's really where customers use all types of the uh, storage portfolio in tandem, and it follows naturally because your data typically goes from you know, very hot to, to warm and to cold, right? Um, but in addition, you can also use Glacier uh, with its APIs. A lot of customers who uh, are, are more used to you know, having uh, devices managing storage in the cloud, they use gateways. They, I can, you know, they can use third-party gateways, uh, or they can use the AWS storage gateway, uh, which runs in a virtual environment. And then, then there are a number of third-party tools. So I'll quickly go over the Glacier Direct Access. Uh, when you upload data, uh, it's very similar to uploading data to S3, except that uh, we throw away the, the file name you give us, and then we create a system-generated archive ID that is unique, right? So we give you that ID when the data is stored durably, and many customers take that ID and then uh, put it in the database where they will match the local file name to the archive ID, right? This is, you know, in the archive space, this is called a content address. It's a unique hash of your, of your content. And if you upload the same file twice to Glacier, you will get two different archive IDs. So Glacier is inherently not um, mutable, right? Cannot be overwritten. And then on the retrieval path, you tell us the archive ID, you specify the retrieval option, expedited, standard, or a bulk, and then we give that data back to you. Simple as that. So um, a lot of customers also prefer to use Glacier uh, using third-party tools, they don't want to write code, which is totally fine. So we typically help them you know, evaluate third-party tools um, you know, in, in these three categories. Uh, if you're looking at you know, small amounts of uh, backup, then the, then the consumer-grade tools uh, will be helpful, like Cloudberry, you know, for example, uh, starts at under $50 per, uh, per instance, and then you can deploy many instances to, to, your, uh, to your business or, or use it for personal. Um, cases, and then we have small, medium um, business uh, use cases. They typically uh, use like, you know, like a Synology, like a Veeam, a QNAP. Some of those are small NAS, entry-level NAS devices that have integration with S3 and Glacier. And then many customers deploy a hub and spoke model where the satellite offices will each have a, for example, like a Synology, you know, a $1,000 device that captures, you know, uh, 10 terabytes of data locally, and then the, the freshest data is, is cached, and the older data moves into, into Glacier. And then if you go into like, you know, m m managing petabytes, tens of petabytes, you can look at enterprise-grade gateways or a number of the uh, hierarchical uh, storage management tools. So which one should you choose, or should your customers choose? It's pretty straightforward. We see most customers use S3 and Glacier in tandem with the lifecycle tools. Uh, it's super simple. This is where uh, the S3 key, the, the, the live listing, um, the, the tagging capabilities are sufficient. And this is also where you do not need a, a super complex, a comprehensive uh, indexing system, right? You don't need a database. You're just using the S3 keys. Um, for other customers who manage their own database, uh, they, they may do some type of uh, comprehensive indexing. They may do um, pre-processing of content, like um, you know, search, capabilities, uh, they would use uh, Glacier directly, right? They will maintain the key to file mapping. And then last but not least, if you're looking at third-party tools, uh, then you, know, you don't have to program. So, so last I want to share with you uh, Vault Lock. How many folks know about Vault Lock? OK. Uh, so Vault Lock is uh, a uh, compliance storage capability that's uh, available through, through Glacier. Um, 
It's very similar, um, if not more easier to use than, for example, like an EMC Centera, uh, NetApp, SnapLock. The, those are the incumbent um, compliance storage appliances that you can buy on the market. So VolLock allows you to set compliance controls on your Glacier containers. You can do things like time-based retention, which is very popular. Uh, it's a requirement amongst uh, US um, bank and broker dealers. They have to uh, keep you know, transaction records for up to seven years. Uh, a pharmaceutical company can also use VaultLock to, to enforce uh, multi-factor authentication on, for example, the most um, uh, important formula. Uh, it governs all the records in the Glacier container, which is a vault. And then uh, we provide an immutable policy and give you a two-step locking process. So uh, if you have used compliance storage before, you, you, you must know warm storage, right? So this is basically um, non-override, non non-erasable uh, storage. So with Glacier, you can control time-based uh, retention by telling us you know, how long you want to retain the data with this archive agent days uh, key control. And we also support uh, legal holds. In case you know, your archives need to go through a legal investigation, you can hold all of the assets independent of the underlying time-based retention. So for example, I have a record that's, that's exiting the retention window tomorrow. Typically, I will be able to delete it. But if I put a legal hold on this container, then it will, th that particular record will be held indefinitely right, until you remove the legal hold. So a lot of bank customers, um, you know, in, including NASDAQ, are using, uh, using VaultLock. They find it super easy. Uh, you can basically get compliance storage for free without paying the overhead of uh, a, a traditional system. So because we're talking about infrastructure, I'm going to share with you some of the you know, um, interesting bits about VaultLock that we, we haven't really you know, talked about publicly before. Number one question is, I get a lot from, uh, from, from bank customers is, um, does VaultLock use warm drives, the non-mutable drives? Does anyone want to venture a guess? No, as in we don't? So we don't use warm drives. Right, so, so we use the same um, media that we use to store uh, Glacier data, but we implemented VaultLock uh, using the IM policy platform. Right? So we make the VaultLock policy self-descriptive, self and it can be extended as the IM platform language grows. Right? What we did is, um, you know, Glacier started off being um, immutable storage. Right? You cannot change something that you've uploaded to Glacier. Like I mentioned, you can upload the same file, you'll get two different IDs, archive IDs. Whereas, whereas with S3, you can upload to the same key and it will override the object. Right? That's, that's the main different differentiation. So how do we achieve WARM? Uh, we, take, we start from the fact that Glacier is immutable storage and then we layer on top of that a, a IM, IM policy that can be uh, locked down and it, it becomes immutable. So in the policy, we state that you, know, you cannot delete data from this uh, vault for up, to, up to, to seven years, and we make that policy immutable. So the third question I get is, what happens to vault lock data? Let's say it's, it's, re it's retained for seven years, but I close my account. Now, do I still have to pay for that, or what do you guys do with it? So uh, if you close your account, we treat the vault lock data in, a, in the same way as if you had already deleted that. We will reclaim the storage area, uh, using our internal process, which is the, you know, the NIST process uh, for um, media sanitization, and we will remove your data according to our internal schedule. Right? So you don't have to pay for that, 
But what we recommend is if you decide to close your account, uh, we give you a, a period of time up to 90 days to read that data, copy it to a different uh, compliant storage platform uh, before you, you know, fully close the account. Right? So that way you ensure compliance for yourselves. Right? It's, it's your responsibility. The final question uh, is, does AWS provide a designated third party um, a service? Uh, we don't, uh, but we have a lot of partners that uh, you know, offer that. Desi designated third party is an entity that, uh, that always has read permissions to your uh, regulatory records, just in case you know, the, the regulated entity is not cooperative in a legal investigation. So, um, we listened to customers, and then when we launched Volloc, we also um, worked with the industry leaders and produced a, uh, a third-party assessment uh, on how Volloc can be used to help customers achieve uh, regulatory objectives such as SEC 17A-4. So this is available on the website. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to uh, you know, let us know. So I'll give you one example of a, of a one-year one year record retention, right? Just, you know, how does it actually work? So for one-year record retention, uh, we translate that into a, tech, a set of requirements, which is no one uh, can delete, uh, can perform the archive operation for archives that, hasn't, that, that is, you know, younger than a year, right? We translate, translate that into an IM policy. And then with about 15 lines of code, you have a self-descriptive policy that you can show your compliance uh, officer. And then you can achieve compliance in a very, very simple manner. Right? And then uh, you do this in the, in the console, and then uh, we'll show you that your vault has been, has been locked with a retention policy, and then you're done. All right, with that said, uh, I'd like to um, invite Jamal Mazar, our special guest today from Spinkler, to share with us how they use AWS to build a uh, disaster recovery service and improve customer experience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Henry. Good afternoon, everyone. So first, let me give you a little bit of context of uh, what is, we do at Sprinkler so you have a little bit and better understanding. Sprinkler is the first unified customer experience management platform for the enterprise. We help some of the largest brands in the world, including Amazon, to do advertising, marketing, sales, research, commerce, care on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and 22 other social media channels globally, all on one integrated platform. Our customers can integrate Sprinkler with their legacy systems, like CRM, to get a unified system of engagement for their for their employees to work together across silos, real time, to manage customer experience at scale. This is a very high level view of our architecture. The most important aspect is on the top right where we are integrated with all the major social media channels. So we enable the users of our platform to engage and listen to their customers on any social media channel. We get data from all social media channels. We, these are mostly messages. We process those messages, enrich them, perform different analytics, if there's image recognition, sentiment analysis, and provide meaningful insights to our customers. 
Because we are integrated with all these major social media channels, we get large amount of data. We have petabytes of data, thousands of servers across different geo regions. And just to put things in perspective, from Twitter alone, we get a few hundred million tweets every day. So we are, we are doing billions of transactions on a daily basis. This is a list of high-level technologies that we are using. We are using several AWS services. We are using several open source technologies. Mainly, we are using Java on Linux. And then for automation and deployment and management, we use Jenkins and Sybil. And then on top of that, we have written a lot of custom code. We have written more than a million lines of code just to manage the infrastructure at scale. So, the question is, what is the difference between high availability and disaster recovery? When you look at high availability, the way we define high availability is it is the ability to run services across different zones in the same region such that if one zone goes down, your service is still up and running without any interruption. The way we define disaster recovery is that you're running your application in a primary region, and if there's an act of God or any man-made disaster. For example, Hurricane Sandy, in that case, several data centers in New York City were flooded and were out for several days. So if you have a, that kind of disaster, you should be able to restore your application in a different geo-region, which is at least separated by 250 miles. And that, that is what disaster recovery is all about. So, in our case, the, when you're talking about disaster recovery, before I go there, the interesting thing to note is that S3 is already highly available. Other than S3, all the other services that we run, we make sure that we are running in a HA mode for our own internal services. If you look at disaster recovery, there are different approaches to disaster recovery. And there are pros and cons of those approaches. So the first one is what we call active-passive, or also known as hot and cold. In that case, you run your infrastructure in one region, you make the copy of your data in a different region, and you keep that in sync, and when disaster happens, you restore using the archival data. The plus of this approach is that it's very cost-efficient. The downside of this approach is that there is always a lag between the data in the primary region and the DR region, so whenever DR happens, you end up losing some data. So second approach is hot and warm which is active, passive. In this approach, uh, you are running infrastructure in one region. Then you are also running infrastructure in a different region. But the infrastructure in the other region is on a standby. So it's in sync fully. And when disaster happens, you switch to their standby infrastructure. This approach works well because it does not you don't lose much data. Then also you can switch very quickly. The downside of this approach is that you are running redundant infrastructure in two different regions, and it's cost prohibitive. The third approach is, which is hot and hot, or active-active. In this approach, you are running your infrastructure instead of across zones. Similarly, you're running it across different geo-regions, and both the infrastructure in different geo-regions is active and taking and using customers. So in this case, if one region goes down, your application can work seamlessly because it's processing the requests from the other region. 
this is a great solution and an ideal solution. The challenge in implementing this kind of solution is that when you are implementing disaster recovery, your data centers are further apart in distance, so there is latency. And if you have very write-heavy application, it's very difficult to run them at a long distance. So in a sprinkler, for disaster recovery, there are two most important SLAs that we rely on, and that's what we commit to our customers. One is recovery point objective, which is RPO. Recovery point objective means that if the DR happens and you restore your application in a different region, how old is your data from the, when you're restoring it? The, we typically commit to 24 hours of RPO. The second thing is recovery time objective. In recovery time objective, the point here is that when you declare DR, from the time you declare DR to the time you restore your application, how long it takes you to bring everything back up. In our case, it varies from customers from six hours to 24 hours. Typically, when we are doing DR, we are aiming for four hours of RTO. We use two AWS regions. We use Virginia as our primary site, and we use Oregon as our disaster recovery site. And then we also use third-party, independent third-party to come and validate our DR test twice a year where we do a full restoration to make sure everything works fine. In terms of the scale and the scope of our disaster recovery, we have thousands of EBS volumes for Mongo, Cassandra, Solar, then we have 1,400 plus Elasticsearch uh, servers. Is, these are SSD servers, i3-4S, i3-8X large. And they are running hundreds of Elasticsearch clusters. We also have thousands of servers running 100 different services. And all, each of these services have unique configuration and code. So, when you try to implement a disaster recovery solution at a high level, which we are doing using active-passive approach, there are three major challenges. First is ability to copy the data and configuration in the same region quickly. Then transferring it to a different region and trying to keep it in sync. And third, having the automation to be able to restore everything up quickly when the disaster happened in the disaster recovery region. So first, talk about the first challenge. When we started out, we try to copy the data in the same region quickly. And some of the challenges we run into is that the traditional backup approaches, because of our scale, didn't work very well for Mongo, Solar, and others. So you cannot take a dump and restore from the dump. We end up taking EBS snapshot for taking those backups. The second thing is that we also started, uh, we have to implement our own status dashboard to show us the backup status for all the clusters that we have in the context of our application and platform to make sure that everything is in sync. Then we run into limits issues. First limit issue we run into is you have thousands of EBS snapshot volumes. You start running the snapshots, and you run into ABS Amazon limits. So we work with Amazon. They help increase the limit. And the second thing we end up doing was staggering our snapshot copying over the period so we are not triggering all of them at simultaneously at the same time. 
The, from the S3 perspective, the, one of the challenges that we run into is we use S3 for backing up our Elasticsearch cluster. In our Elasticsearch, we have 100 plus clusters, 1400 plus servers. So we have more than a one petabyte of primary data in Elasticsearch clusters. Keeping that data when we start writing those 1400 servers in parallel to S3, we ran into S3 IO throttling limits. And these, these kind of limits, once we hit those limits, we work with AWS and we come up with the proper partitioning scheme for our buckets and also coming up with the proper naming convention for each of our clusters. So when we are doing the backups, we are using appropriate partitions and that helps solve this problem. Then second challenge, when we start transferring the data from one region to another region, and from Oregon to Virginia, from Virginia to Oregon, we run into how many concurrent incremental snapshots you can transfer from Virginia to Oregon simultaneously. So again, we work with AWS, so we, they increase the limit on how many parallel snapshots you can transfer. Then, second issue was that there is not enough physical bandwidth. So they added additional bandwidth, and that helped. So what went well from day one, which was very impressive, was we have more than, I would say, three petabytes of data in S3 buckets. And we were keeping this data in sync from primary region to secondary region, and it worked like a charm from day one because we have good partitioning. In our use cases, basically everything that we write to S3, it get copied pretty quickly in the other region, but S3 is eventually consistent, so if you have something which required that it needs to be there in a certain time immediately, then you may want to look more closely to it. But for our use case, it, it was good enough, and we never saw any problem in, with this. Now, the third challenge, which is interesting, is that once we get the data in the other region, now you have to restore the entire platform. How do you do that? So there we realize that there is no way we can manually restore everything and, or have some instruction manual. So you have to write some automation, and it needs to be a single-click automation. So what we end up doing is, after several trial and error, we wrote automation to launch thousands of servers with all their dependencies for our platform, restore the data, create snapshots uh, from snapshots, create volumes, attach them to the servers, do the DNS entry uh, updates, do the code deployments, or do all the configuration, all of that through just one click of automation. One of the interesting things that we learned during this process is, again, in restoration is S3 ability to scale. Again, we have more than one petabyte of data which is sitting in S3 for just Elasticsearch. Now we launch 1,400 plus Elasticsearch servers. And we run, all of these servers go and read from S3 directly in parallel to restore this one petabyte of data. And once the data is restored in the server and they're running, the, the servers replicate the data across region for high availability. So you end up getting two petabytes of data in the running servers from one petabyte of primary data from S3. From the time to launch the servers to the time that everything is restored and replicated for Elasticsearch, it took two hours, which was pretty impressive, given we have more than one petabyte of primary data. The, 
Some of the challenges we run into again here in restoration also was we ran into some API limits where we were hitting uh, limits as we were launching so many servers and calling many API calls. We worked with Amazon. Some limits were hard limits. So we end up implementing caching scheme to make sure that we are not making too many AWS calls for status and other things and make sure that we, we are min minimizing the number of calls we are doing for during the restoration. The second thing that we run into was when you're launching thousands of servers and you're looking for a specific type of instance and you need hundreds of them, you may not get them. So how do you mitigate that? We end up implementing some intelligence in our restoration process for all services and we have to design that to try to look for instances in the same family if we can use fewer, bigger instances or more smaller instances. And if that, those were not available, then try to look for adjacent families. So for example, if I3 is not available, we can try I2. And that helped a lot because in some cases, sometimes you do hit some snags where there is not enough capacity, so you want to make sure that you have some mitigation plan for that. And then we also, one of the things that we did was we built a custom dashboard to provide the overall status. Because once you click the button to restore everything, then you want to see the status of how everything is going. It's a simple dashboard, but it shows you uh, overview of like what, it looks something like this. It shows you the overview of what is the status of the process, which failed, which succeeded, and anything that fails, we keep retrying till it works. So the key takeaways from this is we are keeping more than four petabytes of data in sync across two different geo regions in AWS. And on a daily basis, to keep this data in sync, we are sending 50 terabytes of incremental data from one region to another region using S3 and EBS snapshots. The bandwidth limit increase that we Amazon provided us and then some of the concurrent snapshot optimization that we did helped bring down our copy time from 36 hours to under eight hours, and that helped us with our 24 hours RPO. The other thing we learned was that configuration and metadata, configuration metadata and code, especially configuration metadata, is very critical to make sure you have in sync and up to date. So configuration like your ELB configuration, your RDS configuration, your VPC configuration, we capture all those configuration daily and we put them in S3 and we sync that using S3 sync in the other region, uh, and we use that as a part of the restoration process using our automation. And the most important thing was that we implemented one-click automation. It took us several trial and errors, and we did that, and we still spend a lot of time to make sure that it stays current because we are always doing some new work. But that single-click automation was critical for us because now when we are running the DR test, we literally go click a button, watch the status, and have everything, see everything come back up within hours. So that's all I have here. I will hand it over to Craig for some additional information. Thank you, Jamal. Uh, super interesting what Sprinkler is doing. Thanks for sharing the story. Uh, just two more slides. And if you have questions, we'll have uh, about five minutes for questions from the audience. And then, again, we'll be available after the session. Um, we want you to be aware of the other uh, S3 and Glacier and storage sessions coming up. 
So I won't go through all of these, but you might want to jot down the STG number there. And uh, a particular interest tomorrow at 11.30 is the uh, storage State of the Union. Uh, so uh, Mylon Thompson uh, Bukovec and Wayne Duso will talk about all the different storage products at AWS and what's going on there and have some uh, product announcements. And then um, you can see some of the others there. And remember, these are all fully sold out, except we reserve 25% of the seats in every session. So uh, you should be able to get into most of those if you get there a few minutes early. Uh, we've got some new storage training online. So if you go check out uh, uh, www.aws.training. And where we're going here is certifications that you can achieve, get testing for, put on your CVs, and things like that uh, to achieve uh, AWS certifications. So uh, take a look at those. And um, with that, does anybody have any questions? Somebody does. Step right up. Don't be shy. All right, we've got a customer. I, I, was, <clears throat> I was just curious. Um, you mentioned the expedited retrieval from Glacier, one to five minutes, I think. Is there a data limit for how much you, you can request for expedited retrieval like that? Is there a size limit? Yes, great question. So expedited is designed for urgent uh, retrievals. Uh, we support up to 250 megabytes per request. So that is, that is guaranteed to come back in you know, one to five minutes. Okay. Anything larger than that, you can, uh, you can get up to 150 uh, megabytes of uh, combined throughput, okay. right? Thanks. Cool, thank you. Yeah, Any other questions? I have another question about Glacier yeah. as well. Um, I was wondering if it would be possible to shed a little bit of light on how the archive metadata is stored for Glacier. Uh, the reason I asked is because uh, one of the operations that it supports is retrieving um, a vault inventory mm -hmm. to retrieve you know, a list of the archives in your vaults um, and the metadata associated with them. Mm -hmm. But that's also an asynchronous operation that mm -hmm. takes several hours to complete. Right. Um, I'm wondering if it would be possible to shed some light on like, how that works or the reason for this delay. <clears throat> um, great question. So, so there, there are two pieces to it. So the metadata of Glacier, it's really the, the, the hash right, that we compute based on your content. It's stored in the same durable format as, as the storage. Right? That is the, the hash we use to do checksum you know, comparison in the background over time for fixity. Uh, inventory is one place you can get this archive ID. And inventory is really meant for like, you know, your local database that map, maps Glacier to local files is lost, and you have to like, you know, recreate that. But typically, like, if you have a, have a database that does a file mapping to the Glacier Archive ID, then you're in good state. Beyond that, uh, most customers store um, you know, the metadata in, in their index. And then there's a Glacier Archive description field up to 124 um, characters. You can, you can store some metadata there. OK, we have uh, time for one more question with the whole audience. And then uh, the three of us will be up here for yep. at least 10 or 15 minutes if anybody has other questions. Mm -hmm. So I think you are next. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, we all hear about 11.9s all the time. And you gave an example of calculating it based on Markov chains for movie vendor. Has that been, do you run analytics on the data to know that, or is that 11.9s a totally theoretical number? Uh, great question. It's, it's not a totally theoretical number. That was our design objective and our empirical data that sh it actually shows we have higher than 11 nines. 
It's for both uh, S3 and Glacier. Yes. Uh, we're not going to tell you what we think the actual is, but it's, <laughs> it's at least 11 nines. Yeah. Very cool. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank thanks, you. everybody, for attending. And again, if you have uh, questions, uh, just come see us up front and enjoy the rest of reInvent. Mm -hmm. Thank you, guys.